I would like to buy 1,500 rand worth of the gospel, please. 1.5. Not too much to radically change my life or to make me lose my comfort, but just, just enough um, to make me wear my best clothes, come to church on a Sunday. Uh, you guys look amazing. 1,000 rand uh, worth of God. I want something to numb me, not to transform me. I want a feel-good sermon that's going to shock me with my sin and then leave me, let me off the hook towards the end with grace. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I would like to buy 1.5 worth of the gospel, please. Just enough to uh, fit into a Woolies black bag, not too much to frustrate me or make me love people that are not worth loving. Just a little bit um, of gospel. I would like enough of the gospel to make my family well-behaved uh, and just my kids to uh, come to church and be nice, uh, but not too much to crouch in on my comforts uh, and to make me even give more money. I would love enough of the gospel, just 1.5 of it. Um, a guy called, I struggle to pronounce his name, he's German, uh, why wasn't he Tuana? That is the issue. De Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a German guy uh, who spoke about cheap grace. Uh, now that, uh, that quote is not from him, well I just uh, took a quote uh, called Three Dollars Worth of God, Google it, um, it's by another author, but they both describing what we would call cheap grace. And Bonhoeffer, if you don't know him, I'm going to speak about him later on, but he was basically one of the people that were held for um, and just um, celebrated for his faith. So he lived around uh, the 1930s, uh, towards the late 1930s, and he was a man of faith. Um, but one of the things that we don't know, one of the things we do know about him is that he was involved in a failed assassin of Hitler. Uh, so uh, along with other people, uh, they were plotting to assassinate Hitler, and he was actually executed uh, for that. One of the things that we know about him is that what formed his theology, what formed his thinking, was that he spent a lot of time in the U.S., and he went to an African uh, American church, and as he got there, he found a kind of faith uh, that he was not used to. Uh, Bonhoeffer grew out of uh, a German uh, area that believed, or would say they believed the gospel. Um, it was a, a largely Lutheran, which is a, a German um, national church, um, and basically he saw a lot of the sacraments that were done. He saw a lot of the Christianity of his day. Um, but realized that there was a disconnect between that Christianity and the everyday struggles of life. That there was so much more that God called his people to um, that they were just not living it out. Uh, and he coined this phrase called cheap grace. And I'm going to quote from him uh, later on uh, as he talks about how sometimes we think about the gospel, uh, but we chip in the message of the gospel. Uh, we just treat it like a cheap Hong Kong thing that you buy off the market somewhere in Small Street. You know those Nike uh, shoes? 
that you get at a um, proper Nike store. Um, there's a plug. Uh, there's some at Small Street um, that are much cheaper. And Bonhoeffer says most of the time we treat um, the gospel that way. It's a gospel of grace. We know that there's nothing we can contribute uh, to become Christians. You just need to submit your life to Jesus uh, and all will be well. Just raise your hand, come to the front, we'll pray with you a sinner's prayer, and then you will be saved. Uh, but once you're saved, it's like you get a ticket to heaven uh, and everything is free for all. And Bonhoeffer said that this is cheap uh, grace. One of the things that I look to in my own life, uh, I grew up in church. Uh, I grew up in AME church. Um, it's called the African Methodist Episcopal. Um, the, the church was very traditional. I loved some of the hymns that we sing to this day uh, are from the church. Kanya Kanyaka also is from the church. We used to sing it. The church met outside uh, in a small, in a tree, uh, and it was lit, man. Like, we, we just had fun. No instruments whatsoever, no lights. Um, and every Sunday, Sunday in and Sunday out, there was so much of what I would call the gospel um, that was entrenched in our thinking. There was so much picture of God's grace that was taught week in and week out. And I think in many ways, that laid the foundation of my understanding of the Bible. But I often wonder, what did I miss all those years um, that I only got to understand at the age of 14? What is it that I missed? Because the gospel, as I would have defined it, was so clear. This understanding that there are this law, these Ten Commandments, that are meant to help us love neighbor, love God rather, and love neighbor. And every Sunday we would sing according to our liturgy. Now, liturgy means uh, the prayers that we say together, the order of uh, things that we, how we order church, basically. Uh, so you would say the first commandments, and we would be chanting together, God, please forgive us because we cannot keep these, your holy laws. That's beautiful, but I wonder what didn't click for me in those early years. And I think more often, as I think of it, uh, when I came to encounter uh, apostolic faith mission, which is where I became a Christian in Tabani, they presented to me a Jesus who was powerful. Um, and suddenly, that grace made sense. Suddenly, I came to understand that Jesus is more powerful than any powers of evil that I had feared all my life. Jesus was God, and Jesus was supreme, and I saw it because there were demons screaming at his name, uh, which I had never seen um, all of my life. Now, that's my story. That's not necessarily the gospel story. So what is the gospel? I wonder what you said uh, as, you were meeting, as you were chatting in your, uh, your groups. What is the message of the gospel? What is the gospel? How do we come to understand what Jesus is about? And the gospel, as you see here, mentioned in our first seven verses, what is that all about? And I think I want to start there uh, as a prequel to our series in Romans. Why do I want to do that? Because I don't think there's so many debates around Romans. There's so many things 
um, and favorite verses that people run to when they think about Romans. It is so rich in explaining to us the grace of God uh, that sometimes we miss what it is actually saying in its entirety. Now, here's what you do with the Bible most of the time is that you open it and you're like, oh, I love that verse. Let me apply it as my motivation for this week. The Bible is not written that way. Paul here, in writing to the Romans, is wanting to address specific things in their world and their culture, and is presenting the message of the gospel um, to that culture. And we need to understand, firstly, what is at the heart of the gospel uh, before we unpack it and what it means uh, for life. What is at the heart um, of the gospel? I'm going to read again verses 1 to 7, um, as he starts with verse 1 to 7. And I want to read, if you have your Bibles, please flip uh, through and put your finger on the end, at the end of it, um, which is verses 25 to 27. Um, he starts off with saying similar things, uh, and you'll see what I mean by that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is explaining the gospel there, and we're going to dive into, uh, into that. Verse 5, through whom, that is the Son, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, the word nations there can also be translated Gentiles. The word Gentiles just means the rest of the people who are not Jews. It's the nations uh, that are not Israel. Um, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are called to belong to uh, Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, listen to the end of um, his letter. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings um, and has been known, made known to all the nations, all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about, once again, the obedience of faith to the only wise God, to, to, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so we see the different themes, but what, we, what you and I cannot miss is that what this letter is about is in many ways presenting the gospel of Paul. And as I said, we're going to dive into why Paul would want to present his gospel um, to this church uh, in Romans. He wants them to understand uh, something of his gospel. Now, two things that I want to leave with you uh, this evening, uh, two points, and I'll be out of there. I'm one shot of a great sermon uh, like Reggie. He normally has three points. We have two this evening. The gospel is about 
a king. If you ever miss anything that I say this evening, if you miss anything we say in the series, please don't miss this. The gospel is about a king. It is kingdom language. Secondly, the gospel is about a king who demands obedience. So at the heart of the gospel message, if you miss anything, there's many things that would shape the gospel. There's many ways in which we can explain what the gospel is. But essentially, if we miss this one aspect, and that is the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus is king, you have missed the gospel message. You can preach the cross, but if you miss that Jesus is king, you would have missed the gospel. You can preach anything about Christian living, but if you don't link it and um, kind of drop it and, and anchor it on the kingship of Jesus Christ, you would have missed what the gospel message um, is all about. The gospel is about a king, one. Secondly, the gospel is about a king who demands obedience. Does that sound like the Jesus that you often encounter? Who's demanding? Like, I demand obedience. Let's, don't just hear it from me, let's pick it up uh, from the scriptures. Because I didn't make that up. It's right here in our first seven verses. And we need to do this so that we would be able to understand uh, the summary statement uh, that I mentioned at the beginning, that God is gathering a new humanity under Jesus the King, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be agents of change in a world that is broken, in a world that rejects God as King, to be agents of change in that world as they await a time and a place where Jesus will be ultimately King. So that is um, the gospel message. Let's pick it up from verse 1. Paul, as I said, we can preach a whole message on Paul uh, because here's a guy who, again, the gospel message reaches people, people of flesh and bone, people who are in rebellion against God, and Paul was an example of rebellion. Uh, Paul went around killing Christians for a living. Imagine that. So zealous was he, uh, he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee is one who set apart from the rest of the people, the special ones. So zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers, for the Jewish faith, that he wasn't so happy with this new thing called Christianity. He wasn't happy with this new thing called uh, the Jesus movement, the way, as they called it back then. There was no such thing as Christianity. They called it the way, um, he wasn't happy that people were submitting and calling Jesus the Messiah and the King. So much so that this guy was like, guys, give me a job. My, my job, I just want to hunt down guys who say that Jesus is King and kill them. Just imagine that for a minute. A guy whose heart is hardened to the kingship of the resurrected Jesus. Um, and that becomes the guy who would spread the gospel message um, across all um, the known world at that time. That becomes a guy who's most influential in the Bible. He wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, a lot of uh, Acts of the Apostles are about this man, Paul. Now you have to ask yourself, what happened to this guy? 
Something happened that would transform this guy, Paul, uh, who was a um, zealous Pharisee, to become one of the greatest preachers of the gospel message. He met the resurrected Lord. He met Jesus, who had risen from the grave. And throughout the New Testament, you see that all the apostles, those guys who on the cross, at the cross, before the night of the cross, they were like, Jesus, we don't know you, we go going. They're like, aren't you guys, the guys who were around Jesus? Like, no, no, we were not there. We don't know that guy. Those very guys who fled and denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times, became people who would go out and say, we saw Jesus risen. Uh, so the resurrection of Jesus would become uh, one of the biggest things, one of the things uh, that would motivate people like Paul to go around synagogue after synagogue telling people that Jesus is king, that the resurrected Jesus is king. He spoke to both Jews and to both Gentiles. Jews were people who God had been working with to gather and dwell with so that they would live a transformed life, they would transform their society. Those are the Jews. Now Gentiles were being brought in into this new community. Listen to, uh, in Acts, one of the messages that Paul preaches um, to a group of Jewish guys uh, as he tells them about this guy called Jesus uh, who was uh, crucified. By the way, in the olden days, everybody believed that Jesus died. Everybody saw him die, but not a lot of people believed that he had risen to life. This is what he says in Acts. He says, and though they found in him no guilt, that is this Jesus, uh, in, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And so Jesus was innocent, but they, were, they executed him. The rulers of the Jews gathered together and made a case so that they, he can be crucified. Verse 29, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Jesus was dead. Now, that sounds like a da moment, but there's actually people who believe that Jesus didn't actually die. In fact, the Islamic religion say, um, one of the, the guys called John, Dr. John Azuma, he's, um, he used to be a Muslim, became a Christian. He says that in one of the debates, he was debating with the Muslim and coming with evidence upon evidence uh, that Jesus actually died. And he asked him, and Tlekwena, like, what would be the one thing that would convince you that Jesus actually died? And this guy said to him, well, even if you ever had a video of him dying, because the Quran says he did not die, he, Allah just fooled the people thinking that he was dead, um, I would never believe that. So as much as it sounds like obviously he died, um, we need to say that because not everybody believes that he died a physical death. Islam does not believe that he died a physical death. Uh, they believe that he's alive now, but he didn't actually die. He just collapsed. He just um, was in some kind of a, a, a coma. But verse 29 um, of this chapter says that they laid him there in the tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. 
Verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, So, this Paul is presenting uh, this message. Uh, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, I know a lot of people want to, as an apologetic, say, well, first century slavery was not like um, the slavery in, the, uh, in America, whatever that case uh, is. People do that and say that um, because you see there in ESV, it says a servant or it would say a born servant. The NIV, I think, says slave. <laughs> and I think the actual word is slave. Somebody who's bound to somebody else. Somebody who's a property to somebody else. Uh, somebody who serves somebody else. Um, a servant of Jesus Christ, Paul describes himself as born, bound to Jesus Christ. As one who serves Jesus Christ. Um, this is a side sermon. The Christian leadership in our age, how many of them would use the title a servant? How many people have you had with the titles apostle? Just by the show of hands, apostle, so and so, powerful men of God. When he comes, they kneel before him. But here's a man who met Jesus alive and calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. By the way, this is one of the ways that Jesus and the gospel message revolutionizes our world by presenting a form of leadership that is counter-cultural. But that, let's just park there. Uh, it's for another day. Called to be an apostle, an apostle simply means a messenger who's entrusted with uh, a message set apart. Now, this is interesting. As a Pharisee, you are set apart as somebody special who didn't interact with other people, who didn't interact with those guys down there because they didn't deserve uh, God's um, time. But here he says... He set apart for the gospel of God. Um, Paul, as he's called on his way to um, Damascus, uh, Jesus calls him to go preach the message of the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. He set apart for the gospel of God, which this gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel message is the continuing story of the Holy Scriptures. What is the Holy Scriptures? Well, it's pretty much the Old Testament uh, that speak about a king who is going to come and sit on David's throne. It speaks about God once again restoring the kingdom of Israel. That is um, the Scriptures. Uh, so this gospel of God has been promised beforehand through the Holy Scriptures. Now, this is where uh, our kinship idea comes from. Verses 3 and 4. This is it right here. He explains to us what the gospel is about. The gospel is concerning his son. Uh, that language comes from Psalm chapter 2, uh, where um, it presents to us the idea of the son, uh, the son uh, who is a king. It's a, a, a language of kingship. Uh, and if you don't um, believe me, notice what he says uh, as he continues. Concerning his son, who was descended, descended from David, according to the flesh. Uh, who is David? 
This is the part where he speak back to me. Who was David? I'm not David. Uh, my grandfather's name was Motetu. His boss couldn't pronounce his name. Gave him the name David. Uh, and I ended up with it. <laughs> who is who's David uh, in the Bible? Jesus' son, the king. The king of God's kingdom. Uh, now, if you're speaking about David, it's like speaking about Nelson Mandela. It's remembering a time when everything was just like great. You know, when a proper king sat on the throne. Uh, David was the epitome um, or the high point or the, the king who represented all other kings. Uh, under him, Israel was a nation. Under him, Israel lived to worship God. Everything was functioning the way it was meant to. Uh, so this son of God is descended from the line of David according to the flesh. And you can check that out uh, in the genealogy uh, of Jesus. Descended uh, from David according to the flesh. And then verse 4, the same son who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. One of the key points of the gospel message is that the cross did not destroy Jesus, that human rebellion could not destroy him, that death could not hold him, that he ultimately defeated one of our greatest enemies, and the greatest enemies of God trying to establish shalom, God trying to establish Eden right here on earth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God defeated them. We stand here this evening or sit here this evening because of the resurrection of, of, of Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians 15, and it tells you that if the resurrection is not real, if Jesus did not come to life, we're wasting our time. You're wasting your time. You could be watching Netflix. Um, I mean, um, not that, that there's anything wrong with that, but we could be doing that. We don't need to come to church. We don't need to do that and sing songs if Jesus did not come back to life. But two things that we see, this idea of kingship, verse 3, we see that um, according to the genealogy of Jesus in his human flesh, the son of Joseph is actually a descendant from David's uh, throne. He's a descendant of David, but not only that, by his resurrection from the dead, he was declared to be the son of God. Son of God is this idea of kinship. Son of God is this idea of God's ultimate king who comes to sit on God's throne. Jesus, because of his resurrection, has become king of our world. That is what Paul wanted these Christians who are living in Rome. Rome looked dope. Like if you, this is like the, the best civilization ever. Rome, if you, how many of you are studying law? What kind of law are you studying? What law do you do? What law do we teach here in South Africa? Roman Dutch law. I, I did do um, Com Law 1A. Um, Roman Dutch law is what we would do in 2011, uh, 20, yo, I'm still stuck in 2011, 2021, many years later, because the Roman Empire was that influential. But here is Paul presenting a king of God's kingdom from David's lineage. 
Who in the world is David? Caesar is king. He's sitting on the throne. He's defeated you guys. Uh, But Paul wants these Christians to grasp that Jesus is supreme. More supreme than Caesar who sits uh, on the throne. How is he supreme? Well, he's part of the promises of God in the line of Israel. But not only that, he came back to life through his resurrection. Now this Jesus, this king that we worship, this gospel is all about his kinship. If you don't understand anything about what the gospel is, it is about a king. The marathon, you guys know what a marathon is. How many cases is a marathon? About 41, 42. That's half a marathon, Paul. Um, 42 kilometers. The, the, there was a guy in, the first guy who ran, I forgot from what place to what place, to bring about good news, to bring about a gospel that one nation had conquered another. That was the language of the gospel. Caesar used his birthday and he called it gospel. Had nothing to do with religion. Gospel was simply meaning that something radical has happened. There was a battle somewhere and one nation was conquered and one nation won. There's a new king here um, uh, that you need to submit yourself to. That is what gospel message is about. And to be the one, um, you know that verse that says, how beautiful are the feet of one who brings good news? Just such an irony to that because those guys would be running bare feet across the hot Middle East. So their feet were not beautiful, but they were bringing about good news that there's a new regime in town. A king has conquered, and you are going to submit whether you like it or not. There was no option to say, well, Caesar, yeah, he's king. If you like to welcome him in your heart, <laughs> like submit to his lordship, no, he is king. That is a declaration. Whether you believe that or not, Jesus is king. Amen. Jesus is risen from the grave. He is king and he is Lord. Uh, he's brought about a regime change uh, that you should reckon with. Jesus is king. Now, I, I, I was thinking about, about this. Many of us are born after 2000. Uh, I, I was, when I was in the struggle, <laughs> I was never in the struggle, but I still remember 1994 when my grandmother said, when those police vans come, you must shout, Viva Mandela, Viva. I didn't know anything about what was happening in our country, but what we knew back then was that something radical had happened. Uh, a new government had come into place. A new way of living was um, there. Now, a lot of the things didn't suddenly change because of that. Okay, the status of the country changed. We gained democracy, but there was a lot of outworking of that uh, throughout the years, and we're still working that out. And such is similar with the gospel message. A new king and a new regime has come in place, and we have to reckon with it. Uh, We can reject it, or we can submit to it, but the fact remains that it's there. There's nothing you can do about it. And that is the idea of this word, gospel, that there is a king. How many of us think of the Christian faith in those ways? Now, let's not get it twisted. And I'm going to quote um, 
Bonhoeffer later on, um, because he balances this idea of grace, the fact that for us to be part of God's kingdom is about grace alone. That there's nothing you can bring to the table to say, God, look at me, I go to church, I pay money, I tithe, all of that, I take care of the poor. Look at me, welcome me into your kingdom. It's not about that. It is about grace. But grace is accompanied with lordship. And we'll see that as we get more into Romans. Because Jesus caused these Christians to do some of the things that I'm thinking, man, like, if you call me to do that, um, I just find that hard. Don't you ever find that some of the things that Jesus calls you to do are just near impossible? Where you're like, no, Jesus, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> I think I want to be Lord of my life. Um, and that is uh, sometimes uh, how the Christian faith uh, is. Now, that's um, our first point. Um, it is the gospel concerning Jesus, uh, God's Son, this son who is descended from David uh, in accordance with the flesh, this son who is declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. That is the gospel. It means there is a Lord, and his name is Jesus. And you need to find out the nature of this king uh, as you work out what it means to submit under him. The second point which will be shorter. This is a prequel to our, our series. Second point is that he demands obedience. Jesus demands obedience. Verse 5, Jesus our Lord, through him we have received grace and apostleship. Paul often speaks of himself and his commission as an act of grace. Because if you consider his life, you'd realize that it is indeed an act of grace for God to include him in his plan to change this world, uh, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Obedience of faith. Um, theologians grapple with this concept of obedience of faith. Is it faith that is met, obedience that is motivated by faith or faith that comes from obedience um, they don't know, but one of the things that one guy says is that we cannot separate obedience from faith. We cannot separate submission to King Jesus without understanding that it is only faith in his finished work, faith in what he has done for you and for me. Dr. Seccom, my principal from back in college, says that the gospel is about the mighty working of God against the backdrop of human rebellion and against the backdrop of human inability and even human rebellion. So the gospel message, Jesus is king, you know what a backdrop is when you have on Zoom that background that you normally put up? Here's Jesus, not me. Uh, you should go listen to Black Sermon about Jesus. Why should we worship a white savior from the morning service? Anyway, Jesus is the picture of his of king. Um, the backdrop of that is human rebellion and human inability. So it's the mighty working uh, of God against the backdrop of human inability. We cannot do it. We cannot obey God. We cannot fulfill his plan for our world, and we don't want to do it. 
We don't know how to do it. So obedience and faith have to come hand in hand. The gospel is about grace, but the gospel is also about obedience. And verse 7, he's speaking to real people, to Christians in Rome. And when we understand what his message means to those people, we will understand what it means for us here as a student, um, here in Midrand, as a young adult and a young worker here in Midrand, you would understand what it means to submit to him. Because many of us, all of us, drift away from submitting to King Jesus. All of us have this inclination to want to be our own king. Carson, Don Carson puts it this way. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We don't do that. Left to our own devices, we want to live our own way. Left to our own devices, we want to do our own thing. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indisciplines in of, of, self, of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That is you, uh, that is me. The kinship of Jesus, my life, apart from grace-driven effort, coming every day and saying, I can't do it. By grace, help me do it. Empower me to do it. That is the gospel message. Um, and what we're going to see throughout Romans is that Christian teaching is connected to Christian living. When God, for instance, talks about the resurrection, the resurrection is true, very often it will be said in a context. Paul would want the Christians or the writers of the New Testament will want them to grasp something about this teaching that will change their lives. Philippians chapter 2, Black mentioned it earlier this morning. He mentions the incarnation of our Lord, that God, Jesus, although being in the very same nature as God, humbled himself uh, to be a human, died a death on the cross, God exalted him. Do you know why he says that in Philippians? Because two ladies in the church were not getting along. And he says, like, this is the king who was in glory. He humbled himself. Think Grandma Posa washing toilets here. That's how ludicrous that is. He humbles himself to become human. And as if that's not enough, he dies the most humiliating death, a death on the cross. And God exalts him. And Paul teaches those Christians this doctrine, this teaching, so that they can get along. If you understand this big thing, what's going to happen to the Christian um, things? How many of us say, I can't come to church anymore because there's just someone I cannot forgive? Paul doesn't talk about church head. He gives us a big picture of King Jesus. And he says, that's the guy you submit to. Paul in um, 
1 Corinthians works out the gospel. Christians are bringing each other to court. Christians are sleeping around. Uh, they've gone wild. And he says to them that their bodies um, belong to God, that they will be raised again. And because of that, it matters how they live their lives. Christian doctrine, resurrection of Jesus, Christian living, how you handle your body matters. Christian living, what we're going to see, is connected, rather Christian doctrine, Christian teaching, is connected um, to Christian living. Amen. I want to end it off with this um, quote from Bonhoeffer, which I think, in many ways, handles well this tension between Lordship, Jesus is Lord, and grace. It's from his book called The Cost of Discipleship. I'm going to, let me read for us. He says that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, pardon without personal confession. Cheap grace is uh, grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That is cheap grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. It is a pearl of great price to buy, with, to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus that which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. How many of us would get rid of our phones because we want to please Jesus with the things that we watch on our phones? To pluck out their eye in response to God's grace because pornography has us by the sleeves, by the, by the neck. How many of us would do that? Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which man must knock. Such grace is costly because it causes us to follow, and it is grace because it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly grace because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at the price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Now let me leave you with these um, two questions. How is grace working itself in your life to help you say no to being king of your own life? The second question, when was the last time you read something in the Bible and you thought to yourself, I don't want to do that. I just, I feel like that's, that's too tough what you're calling me to do, Jesus. When was the last time that happened?